0: Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast.
1: You've been listening to Two Hours of Great Voices and that was a program first presented on 3CR in August 2010, and we all send our best wishes to Chris. On the program today, Olive Kids, people working to support Palestinian children, mainly in Gaza. I'll be speaking with the chairperson of Olive Kids, Amin Abbas. Medical aid to within Tanzania's refugee camps. Dr. Peter Wig from Medicine Sans Frontieres. Just been there and when you listen to Peter talking, you might pick up the difference between how people in poor countries look after refugees, not like we do here in Australia. And the monthly segment with Bob Phelps, Genetics Network, and increasingly Roundup is being wiped out in many places around the world. We've been pushing for this for many years and Bob's been doing it for even longer. And there is there a link between the Black Plague and influenza? Joan Coxage believes there could be. We'll hear more about that. And China, the boogeyman, with journalist and researcher Nick McClellan. But first, Mr Kevin Healy, and he's definitely not a boogeyman
2: wait, Jane, listener, when our excitement at the re-election of that mainstay of satire, the Minister for Concentration Camp's razor wire, sink the Votes, and keeping us secure, Constable Peter Duffer, was verified when he hit peak form early, telling the nation the appointment of Christ in a Keneally to Jesus as his shadow showed new Socialist Party supremo and would-be big supremo, Anthony Albinozzi, had a sense of humour because she is the most unqualified of all to be in charge of concentration camps, because somewhere in her distant past she questioned treating no-proper papers, queue-jumping illegal boat people cruelly, inhumanely, locking them up for life, even proffering they should be brought to Troubluosi for assessment, rather than enjoying life on Manus and Nauru for non-assessment, revealing Pete's idea of a sense of humour which would help explain why we hold him in such high regard, but True to her principles, Christ Inner assured Constable Duffer and all of us that she no longer believed no proper papers, etc., people should be treated humanely. That she could be, no, no, would be as cruel as the good Constable and his predecessor, the now big Supremo. Indeed, should these leeches on our goodness and kindness and generosity even be considered people in the normal sense? And, and her earlier comments were just. Youthful ignorance, a year or so ago or last week or sometime in the distant past, her unflinching principle reflects the radicalism infecting the whole socialist party, as it seems landlords and developers and the honourable real estate industry should continue, no, must continue to enjoy public purse support. That filthy rich shareholders who somehow manage to pay no tax, which turns out to be their legal tax obligations, should continue, no, must continue to enjoy public purse support. That the big end of town is not the big end of town, but just misunderstood altruists, philanthropists, social saints. That there is no big end of town and it shows class envy and class hatred to suggest there is. Why, if we were the U.S. of the U.N. of the U.S. of the world, which we kind of are, big supremo Donald Trump of the poor would have the term erased from the public lexicon and impose a small penalty for its use, say, 45 years. Because this week Donald has gone to page 103 of the Webster's Dictionary, the eyes, and ripped it out, ordering the word... Impeachment be removed from the language, so dirty, filthy, disgusting a word it is, the worst word ever, proudly holding up a freshly signed decree showing he just committed the word to the dustbin of history, interesting because that's where some Democrats suggest that should happen to him. With impeachment taken care of, Donald then headed for a royal visit to her most gracious majesty's home country, where he tweeted modestly that the people love him. And they're certainly turning out in the streets in great numbers. Mention of Keneally to Jesus, a resurrection. Former Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Erica Betts on the Bosses, is back, and now supports the workers, particularly workers, as he defines the term, who declare evil homosexuals and atheists and other serious sinners will burn in hell for all eternity unless they repent. Uh, This is a blatant attack on the human rights and freedom of speech of lovers of the dear baby Jesus, Uh, so church bodies cannot sack or reject homosexuals or atheists, for instance, Eric. Uh, That is a completely different situation. Not being able to sack evil sinners would be a blatant attack on the human rights and freedom of speech of lovers of the dear baby Jesus. Heaven up, hell down, and the aphorism, what goes up must come down, was proven in one case and disproved in another. First, proven. Poor caring employers were hit Thursday with a massive increase in pay for the lowest of low-paid workers. A crippling 56 cents an hour, which the Troubler-Wazzy Chamber of profit sputtered, would cost jobs. Was it excessive inflation? And imagine how many jobs this will cost. What hurt to the caring employers whose one desire in life is to provide jobs for the ingrates who keep making outrageous claims that lead to caring employers being hit with this crippling 56 cents an hour increase why, that, that's almost a cent a minute One Chamber of Profits said exactly that, that it would hurt those who don't have jobs. Their concern is so heartwarming. But how does it prove the must-come-down bit? Well, thankfully, just as this attack on the ability of the caring business class to employ the ingrates will come in, the second cut in penalty rates for the lowest of low paid will simultaneously begin, at least some spore relief for the besieged good, good bosses, particularly if, hopefully, the cut will exceed the 56 cents, making the fair work, true blue Aussie, no longer work choices, just looks like a decision even more irresponsible, and not only proving the aphorism, but showing what goes up must come down, and then some. And to think Fair Work Troubler was he no longer made this outrageously pro-worker, pro-evil unions decision, despite the fact that in order to restore balance to the bench, the past 20 appointments have come from the caring employers. And good news, there are at least eight vacancies imminent. More chance for the government and new Minister for Caring Business Class Relations, Christian Pottom, to restore the balance even further. And despite saying he would take a hard line on evil unions to show how Christian Christian is, he said he would consult with evil unions in good faith. Over changes he plans to make industrial relations more efficient, presumably more hardline efficient, and it shows how unions and workers are not responsible or law abiding. The caring employers, through their sundry chambers of profits, have welcomed Christian's in good faith approach, the changes he will make, while the evil unions, not a sound, not a word, not a thank you, Christian, for acting in good faith. That's the proven. But the disproved, what goes up won't come down. We know that we're all paying an ever inflating fortune for our gas and the energy companies keep telling us they'd just love to charge us less but well the world price for liquefied natural gas is so high and we have to pay the highest common denominator world price even though the gas is produced on our doorstep but we could pay less if only certain state governments would open up the gas they have locked up on specious grounds like it would destroy the environment when they know the environment should never come between a resource company and a bag of lovely, lovely money. And anyway, they all guarantee the environmental impacts will be minimal. There's the difference. The bloody, selfish environmentalists want everything while the responsible resource behemoths are prepared to compromise the week that was put to them that they would have more gas for domestic use if they stopped exporting it but they explained that bit about the high world price etc and all that well when it went up our bills went up but now for the past several months the world price has fallen come down gone down so the trouble was competition and consumer commission has suggested that just maybe if what went up went up then when when what comes down should come down, so to speak. But the great energy behemoths, who would love nothing more than to reduce domestic prices, say that is too simplistic, that the cost of exploiting domestic gas supply is so high, so what went up can't come down. The energy behemoth must be so upset, it, it, it might seem logical to us, but all that shows once again that we just can't comprehend the intricacies of the delicate flower that is the economy. For instance, even if they got access to more gas, which they say is the way to lower prices, the same problem would, as, would, would apply, so that wouldn't lower prices. We celebrated last week the rescue of that great warrior, lover of a bit of train killing, Jim Morlem, cast out of the Senate not so much by the voters as by his own lot dumping him down the ticket. Rescued by big Supremo scuttlebem Moore Lashson, packing another senator off to Washington to slave his guts out for us. So Jim, the big train killer, could be thanked for his loyalty in urging people to ignore the party ticket and vote for him. And I raise this because when some commentator suggested that might be seen to be a touch disloyal jim said this was a slight on his character and reputation showing his character believes in ratting when it comes to your personal interests which might explain why he likes a bit of slaughter of whoever is ordered to slaughter Uh, do i hate them oh yes you really hate them good good kill kill we can but hope it goes to script because a number of other good-caring business-class party apparatchiks have also put up their hands for the vacancies because a similar arrangement could get the defeated Sarah Hender soon gone, soon back. I'm sure Jim would see challenges to his reappointment, gross disloyalty. Bring back the firing squad. Finally, there's a positive in everything, like the increasing number of deaths arising from this season's flu positive i hear well yes headline true blue capitalist review thursday funeral shares up on rising flu deaths <laughs> ah compassion they're rubbing their hands together just hope they watch them first good afternoon
1: and that was mr kevin healy and if you can take more of that he's on tomorrow morning at nine o'clock but it is slightly different a program from 9 to 10 here on 3CR. And this is next week for the program.
3: The 3CR Radiothon is here.
0: And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio.
3: That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits.
4: Your support during Radiothon powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people and issues for another year.
3: And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference. And all donations over two dollars are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019, June the 3rd to the 16th. Power radical radio.
1: Olive Kids is an Australian registered foundation that seeks to facilitate financial support, education and medical assistance for Palestinian children. And its major fundraising event is the annual dinner, which will be held this year on the 16th of June. Amin Abbas is the chairperson of Olive Kids and I spoke with Amin at the weekend to talk about what the organisation has been able to achieve for the children since its inception in 2007. But I asked him first to identify where these children live that they help.
0: We
5: predominantly help children in Gaza these days and typically as an organisation we try and focus on the Palestinian children regardless of where they are in Palestine or the refugee camps. However for For very obvious reasons, the children in Gaza were our focus. We typically work with partners, so our arrangement is usually through partnerships on the ground, and our partners are at Al Amal Orphanage in Gaza, where predominantly some of the orphans would be our target through the sponsorships. However, particularly with the program this year, we would like to generally try and target the children with accessibility challenges in Gaza in general.
1: Okay, well let's talk about the orphanage program. Has that been your focus right from the beginning?
5: Yes, pretty much so, in fact at the very start, part of the drivers for us to start this organisation were two reasons really, two main drivers. One was actually the children uh, and particularly a couple of years in the backdrop of September 11th. Some people were quite concerned about sending aid to refugee camps or Palestine in general and we thought we are not going to really stop helping the children because we just don't understand the process. So that was kind of one key driver for us to really figure out ways of ensuring that the donations get to the right hand. But the other reason or the other driver was actually medical missions that were organizing to uh, hospitals again in Gaza and in Palestine and wanted to make sure that we have the right facilitation and funding for those missions by Australian surgeons going to Palestine to help the surgeons over there, and also obviously the children. So it is, there's a like a skills transfer in addition to help with the complex operations. So those kind of were the key drivers for us to start from the very beginning. So yes, the children were one, the orphan children were one, one major driver, but the other one was the medical missions.
1: Okay, well I would imagine there's more than one orphanage in Gaza. How did you choose this one?
5: We were very keen on choosing an organization that was apolitical, has a historical track record of the programs that we're interested in. It has other international funders that also contribute to their programs, and it has very good solid governance. And we felt that uh, this particular organization's, organization was ticking all the boxes.
1: How did you get it off the ground?
5: So uh, I guess uh, Olive Kids. In the very beginning, in fact, when we started, we started with a very small organization that was focused on the children in Jerusalem. And this is where we started some of the uh, initial work for the sponsorship of orphans. Uh, and that was kind of a brief for about maybe uh, one or two years. But during that time, we started to uh, reach out to organization in Gaza and found an Amal. And, and basically, it started through us, uh, discussing what we really needed through the sponsorship program, we were very particular about having two elements to the program. One that relates to the services that we provide to the orphans that, you know, the $50, which is a typical sponsorship payment per month that we provide, is split into two portions. One portion that covers the services and the other smaller portion, about maybe 40%, to be put aside for the child until they are 18 years old, where it can help with their education or like a small, you know, cash that they can actually use to help towards, uh, uh, you know, starting in life. And, and this whole particular organisation was happy with this arrangement, and we basically agreed uh, on what would be the, the focus of the program inside the partnership agreement.
1: How do you choose the child? Because I'd imagine that if you choose some children the other children don't benefit. How does that work? For a
5: start, the, the definition of, of an orphan from uh, like a, a Palestinian perspective, and probably to an extent from a, the perspective of, of the Middle East, is the child that loses a father, not necessarily loses both parents. Now, uh, the orphans that we assist typically, or the children that we assist, might have both are uh, parents in, in some scenarios, uh, that have have been lost, or or one being predominantly the father, because the father typically is the in that part of the world the uh, individual that provides. In answer to your question, we actually work with the orphanage in Gaza to help us identify the orphans. A massive, uh, huge uh, list of orphans that typically apply for the orphanage So the children. Uh, that stay at the orphanage would be one group that we, we look at, but also uh, orphans that are living outside, potentially with either the mothers in the scenario where the mother is still alive or with extended family, which is obviously happens quite often in that part of the world. We don't actually exclude any particular scenario. Uh, however, we, we stress the fact that we wanted a mix of, as much as possible, uh, males and females. We don't obviously discriminate against, any religious affiliation, although typically in that part of the world, Muslims are the majority, but obviously we have a mix of, of faiths as well. And in, in Gaza in particular, the situation has been so bad, especially more recently. So typically we ask for the most distressed families that we, we assist, and this is where the criteria can be quite obviously a flexible subject to uh, what cases are presented to our partners in Gaza.
1: I think most people are aware of the, the dire situation right through the Gaza Strip. And how do you assist with the children's education? So,
5: so this is happening, well, for a fact, the services that we described in here involve education at the orphanage. So the orphanage is not a school. Uh, however, they do provide assistance with all the children that are resident at the orphanage, but they also provide services for orphans that are living outside. So there's actually day activities where these children typically are either uh, living in so they get the full service uh, or uh, some of them come during the day for some assistance with their education. Sometimes they get meals, some form of entertainment, especially for the young ones. So this uh, is typical in in some of those scenarios. So uh, from an education perspective, uh, the programs that ML runs to support and help the children with their education uh, are actually run by specialists within the orphanage. We have also run programs uh, within uh, Al-Amal to also help remotely with some of the potential concepts that can help Al-Amal, for example, nutrition or uh, uh, dealing with basically stress, some sort of programs that we've done remotely, uh, both with the children and also the providers. So from an education perspective, uh, it is typically uh, those programs that run Al-Amal. But also, like I said, that portion of the money that we keep aside uh, and is put in a a trust in a bank uh, jointly with Uh, the names of the child and the orphanage uh, are actually a small amount that potentially can help a child when they start the education so this is basically the other element where where we help with so i'm talking specifically in this scenario education of of the uh, uh, orphan children
1: i'm thinking about the wars that the israelis have brought on the people in gaza medical mission must be so important
5: absolutely absolutely critical the situation in Gaza has been dire for pretty much since the start of the siege uh, 10, 11 years ago. We've had, in a number of cases, had to provide urgent medical supplies, particularly in the backdrop of of wars. So that has actually happened uh, at least a couple of times where we had to jump in and, and uh, uh, basically provide as much uh, uh, dollars or savings that we have, or like you know funds that we we have donated for uh, urgent relief from a medical perspective. So that has obviously happened quite a number of times. However, the regular annual mission that we do focuses on educating the surgeons in Palestine by having surgeons from Australia go and deliver operations. Professor David Crocker has been a regular person to go and annual missions every year. However, more recently, uh, the situation has got far more complicated, especially in the last 12 months with the March of return. Injuries. There's a massive number of injuries, I think the estimates is about 17,000, 18,000 that were shot in the lower limbs where uh, there's been obviously a lack of proper medical attention uh, that lasts for obviously months after the injury where uh, many of those, uh, including uh, many cases of children, uh, end up having amputations because of the lack of attention and not having the obviously the ability to financially get the right medical attention, or in some cases, not having the right capacity within the existing health system in Gaza to basically do complex operations. And this is where this year our our hope is to really focus on that aspect of helping particularly the children with with the medical mission where we can focus on basically assisting children with injuries in the lower
1: limbs. How do you get medical teams into Gaza? Because I know it's virtually impossible for most people to get through. It's a very good question. We
5: have established track record through coordinating with the Australian Embassy in, uh, in that part of the world. So obviously it is something that we have to do a lot of coordination. There's no guarantees uh, that you know, some of those missions will be successful due to the restrictions that often are basically put by the Israeli authorities. So we, we always have to do a lot of coordination. Uh, We have been able to successfully do that over the last uh, few years because of the track record that we have, Uh, and we are hoping that this year also we will be able to arrange that mission successfully. There has been scenarios where we were basically rejected entrance or delayed entrance at certain periods, and we had to reschedule or find the right ways to do it. I think there was one instance where uh, one of the surgeons was stuck in, in Gaza an extra week because of refusal to leave. So anything can potentially happen in that part of the world and we have uh, amazing surgeons that are willing to basically risk their lives, really. This is literally the case, to be able to help the children. So uh, lots of respect to, obviously, the, the surgeons that do that and help us, but uh, obviously we have to do what we have to do.
1: Are you able to get medical supplies in as well with the surgeons?
5: In, in the past, what we, we have done is it, when we sourced medical supplies, it was through basically funding uh, to source them from from gaza through the supplies within the gaza strip it's uh, li- really hard for us to really uh, send quantities however if we're talking about very basic supplies uh, that you know the surgeons can take with them i'm talking about like things that can be hand taken uh, then that's a possibility however nothing beyond that uh, we can arrange through those missions in the past, actually we have arranged for a uh, a medical device uh, to be purchased and shipped due to the lack of availability of that device. That took quite a, a number of months actually to organise, and that was organised through uh, uh, ONOWA. so even a UN agency. It took us a while to get it through. So you're absolutely right in having a challenge in getting, you know, medical equipment uh, supplies. Would typically done locally through the suppliers.
1: I'd imagine that um, with the blockade by Israel that it would, be, it would be difficult for the people of Gaza to even get the, the basics in. Is that correct or not?
5: Uh, absolutely. Look, the, the blockade has been strangling to the people of Gaza for for so long, for a very long period of time. So we're talking about a small area that is blocked from, you know, basically the air and, and, and the sea and, and the land and, People are really struggling in every way, shape, or form. In fact, when we speak to our partners in Gaza, they, uh, whether it's the medical like medical partners or the orphanage, they have been telling us how the situation is worsening significantly over the years. Uh, in fact, we're obviously uh, at this time, we, we, this is Ramadan, and, and typically... Uh, A lot of people are very generous, including the uh, uh, people that are typically, I can't say there's a lot of wealthy people in Gaza, but typically the will-off in Gaza typically assist the orphanage uh, by providing meals to the children and providing some gifts. Uh, What we're being told over the last few months, in this particular Ramadan this year, a lot of these funds are actually not coming at all. Uh, In fact, local funding, so obviously as international funding that comes to them from Australia, they heavily rely on us now Because in the past, they used to get significant donations locally and they're saying this is 95% of these donations no longer come. So there's there's less than 5% of the local funding that is actually coming to the orphanage these days. So we're we're talking about a very significant. This reflects the the fact that even the the generally will-off are just trying to get by. So the situation is so bad. Unemployment is very significant. You're talking about maybe two out of three that uh, uh, don't have any jobs. Uh, youth employment is extremely significant, so it's a very, very sad situation, you know not just the fact that they have ongoing siege and blockade, it's the fact that even the very basic supplies do not exist in the strip, let alone them being able to go out and leave or, or get something or, or do something in the line. very, very sad situation.
1: And of course that that applies for food as well.
5: Absolutely. You know, the, the more recent UN reports that suggest that there, w- there will be some serious, you know, hunger in Gaza just sort of the at, which is extremely sad for this to happen. But this is really man-made hunger that is created. It, it's not to do with drought or, you know, a natural disaster. This is something that's man-made and, and inflicted by one people, by another. Sadly, uh, it, it's uh, horrific that we're watching that in this day and age.
1: Did they not? People can yeah. come to the dinner, when is it, and are there other ways that people can also help the kids?
5: Absolutely. We have a, the dinner uh, on the 16th of June, which is a Sunday. The event uh, will be uh, at Peninsula in uh, We are he- hoping to obviously support the specific mission that we described earlier about helping Medical mission to help with with injuries in the lower limbs and, and also help with prosthetics and uh, also bike crutches. The, mission, the dinner theme is let's all join in to help the children with accessibility challenges or also females to all join in and, and do sports activities. Uh, and uh, people that are unable to go to the dinner, by the way, the link to the dinner is allitkids.org.au slash dinner. And people that are unable to join us and would like to donate, they can go to olivekids.org.au slash donate.
1: Thanks very much, Amin, and good luck with it all.
5: No worries. I appreciate it. Hope that was okay.
1: That certainly was okay, Amin. That's Amin about from Olive Kids. I'll give you those um, addresses again. It's olivekids.org.au slash dinner or olivekids.org.au slash donate and that's a great organisation seeking help for the children, particularly ones who are suffering in Gaza.
3: 3CR are selling kefir Palestinian scarves in support of the last factory that produces them
6: in Hebron, Palestine. All profits will be donated to the reconstruction efforts in Gaza and support Palestinian industry. These are traditional scarves, available in red and black, or you can choose from a modern design. Go to 3cr.org.au to buy
3: online or drop into the station during business hours. Hello gardeners, Pam Vardy here. Get ready to turn on and tune in to the gardening show's annual radiothon. It all takes place on Sunday the 23rd of June from 730 to 10am when you can help keep your favourite gardening show growing. Listen in on Sunday the 23rd of June and call nine four one nine eight three double seven for great deals on seeds, new organic products, gardening tools, nursery vouchers, magazine subscriptions and new green focused book titles or make a tax-deductible donation to support 3CR Community Radio. Join us at the station after the show from 10 to 12pm to pick up your prizes, have a cuppa and say hello. Dig deep for the 2019 3CR Gardening Radiothon, 7.30 till 10am on Sunday the 23rd of June.
1: In 2017, a government backdown meant that health workers are permitted to air concerns about Nauru and Manus Island centres, although other staff still face threats of jail terms. But according to the president of the Doctors for Refugees, who stated at the time, quote, it doesn't change the appalling lack of care refugees often seem to receive, unquote. Today we hear about mental health care for refugees in a huge camp in Tanzania, a poor country in Africa, which appears to be far superior to that our government offers those they incarcerate in offshore internment camps. The speaker is Melbourne psychiatrist Dr Peter Wigg, who recently spent time in a large refugee camp in Tanzania working for Medicines Sans Frontières.
7: My name is Peter and I've just come back from Tanzania. And it's a country in East Africa just below the equator. So to the north is Kenya and Uganda, and to the south is Mozambique and Zambia and Zimbabwe, and to the west is Lake Tanganyika, and on the other side of that is the Congo. Just between the Congo and Uganda, up in the far northwest corner, there's a little country called Burundi, which is a landlocked little country. I was in Tanzania to work as a psychiatrist at a refugee camp there. I'll tell you a little bit about Tanzania and Burundi, where the refugees come from. Tanzania is a country with a population of 51 million, and it has 252,000 refugees in camps. It's a fairly poor country. Its rank in the Human Development Index is 151 out of 188. Surrounded by conflict, it nevertheless has a history of hosting refugees from neighbouring countries. For over half a century, it has been a country of asylum, hosting one of the largest refugee populations in Africa, mainly from the Democratic Republic of the Congo, from Burundi and Rwanda, and the vast number at the moment are from Burundi. 2015, it saw its refugee population double as increased political instability across the border in neighbouring Burundi forced a mass influx of Burundians displaced by violence. Refugee camps have become overstretched and underfunded. Approximately 378,000 refugees live outside Burundi, including in Tanzania, but also in other countries. There was a peak of around 430,000 Burundians in March 2018, but as of early October that year, about 40,000 refugees have returned to Burundi from Tanzania under a voluntary repatriation program, involving Tanzania, Burundi, and the United Nations High Commission for Refugees, the UNHCR, to return to Burundi after Tanzanian local authorities have banned them from trading inside the closed camps they have been living in, and cash-strapped aid agencies have reduced daily food rationing to one meal a day. Although Tanzania has experienced relative peace and stability since achieving independence in 1961, and its economy is experiencing rapid growth, Infrastructure and social services lag far behind. So many refugees and populations from the host communities around the camps do not receive the services and the support required and as a result are extremely vulnerable. Physical and sexual abuse against women and girls in their homes and schools is common in host communities, refugee camps and in cities of Tanzania. Services to prevent abuse and help survivors heal are inadequate. Poverty and unemployment are major contributing factors to high rates of violence. Education services for refugees are inadequate and many students fail to pass required tests to graduate. Most youth do not learn key skills to succeed in their future. So now let me tell you about Burundi, which is the source of these refugees. It's a small country with a population of 11.5 million. It's very mountainous and it's landlocked. The humanitarian situation there is dire. The country's once vibrant civil society and media landscape has been decimated since the crisis began in April 2015, when the President, Pierre Nkurunziza announced his bid for a disputed third term. Since then, Burundi's security services and members of the Imbunarakura, the ruling party youth league, carry out widespread human rights abuses, including summary executions, rapes, abductions, beatings and intimidation of suspected political opponents. Many of the worst abuses occurred in the lead-up to a 2017 constitutional referendum which enables President Nkurunziza to potentially remain in power until 2034. Announcing the referendum, Nkurunziza warned that those who dared to sabotage the project to revise the constitution by word or action, would be crossing a red line. In the months leading up to the referendum, police, intelligence services and members of the Imbonerakure killed, raped, abducted, beat and intimidated suspected opponents of the ruling party. Beatings and intimidation of suspected opponents continued after the vote. In 2018, Burundi's National Security Council announced a three-month suspension of international non-government organisations, As a result, the operations of around 130 international NGOs, some of them providing life-saving assistance, were seriously hampered. A UN Commission of Inquiry confirmed new cases in 2018 of summary execution, enforced disappearance, arbitrary arrests and detention, sexual violence, torture and other cruel, inhuman or degrading treatment. The Commission concluded that the perpetrators of these crimes, the National Intelligence Service, the police and the Ibonakuri, operate in a climate of impunity perpetrated by the lack of an in- independent judiciary. Medicines on Frontier, for whom I work, uh, that's Doctors Without Borders, provide health services at Nduta Camp, which is one of the three large refugee camps in Tanzania, close to the border with Burundi. The houses 85,000 refugees, most of whom have been there for several years and remain frightened to return to Burundi. The health services include primary health care clinics and a hospital offering adult medical, paediatric, maternity and mental health services. The whole area where I was... Is rolling green hills. Very intense green vegetation and a very intense red soil. And the people wear very brightly coloured clothes and are very black. So it's very intensely colourful area. These rolling hills are not savanna and they're not jungle. They're a mixture. They're sort of wooded. Very heavily populated. Not a lot of wild animals there because there are endless villages. Not an urban population, but it's densely populated with people in villages and each village surrounded by extensive gardens. The people have goats, chickens, ducks, geese, and grow maize and sweet potatoes and so on. The camp itself is also set among the trees, and the people there in the camp all live in, in little huts, not unlike the huts in Tanzanian villages. So the life in the camp is not that different from being in a village in a way, except that they can't leave. Many of those in the camp have also have a few goats and chickens and grow some maize and other produce. More pleasant being in the camp than it would be being in detention in Australia, for example, as an asylum seeker, the hardship is that many of the people from Burundi were previously teachers or clerks or uh, doctors, and they're now living as subsistence farmers, and they don't know what their future is and they can't leave msf or medicines on frontier as you probably know is a worldwide health provider in emergency or out of control situations and it excels at that it is funded by donations from private individuals and remains independent of all governments and of the un and all private corporations and in induta camp There are many others providing assistance, such as food, and they help the people to build their houses, they make sure they've got clean water and uh, good toilets and so on. MSF works close to one in particular, an American NGO, called International Rescue Committee, which was not one I'd heard of before, but it's actually very big in Africa. runs schools in the camp and also facilitates referral of some patients to the government services outside the camp. The International Rescue Committee has a broad commitment to improving the health, safety, education, economic well-being and empowerment of crisis-affected people in Tanzania and in other parts of Africa. It has been a leader in Tanzania since 1993 and will continue to support the government and local organisations as they welcome refugees fleeing turmoil in the region. The IRC's 2020 strategy in Tanzania is to prioritise keeping people healthy and safe, improving education and enhancing people's decision-making, power and economic well-being, specifically targets refugees and host communities with a focus on women. The MSF medical services in Nduta camp include a large and important psychosocial support service and a psychiatric service treating psychiatric illness. In addition to having the usual incidence of psychiatric illness and psychological disturbance of any population, The camp residents have also been highly traumatised before arrival, and so they suffer from high levels of post-traumatic stress disorder. And, as I said, they also suffer from the entrapment, deprivation, underemployment and future uncertainty that refugee camp life represents. In addition, there are thought to be tensions in the camp between groups with threats of further violence. Because it's all in Burundian language, it's a little bit of a mystery to the rest of us what exactly goes on in the camp. But it's interesting that Nkurunziza, the current dictator of Burundi, was once in Nduta camp and planned his takeover from there. In addition to that, there are external pressures from the government of Tanzania for the camp residents to return to Burundi, whether they want to or not, and however dangerous that might be for them. So there are intermittent, unnecessary restrictions. For example, the Tanzanian government has banned them from riding bicycles around the camp. Well, a camp of 85,000 is very big, and what difference does it make to anyone, whether they ride bicycles or not? It also has banned the use of any wood cut from the trees for firewood, although there are trees everywhere. The government has also banned them trading. They used to run a little, um, a little market, for produce from their own gardens which they sold to Tanzanians from around the area and they're not allowed to do that anymore. So there are various pressures on them in that way. As I said, there's a psychosocial support team and a psychiatric care team run by MSF. The psychosocial support team and the psychiatric care are given mainly by local Tanzanian doctors, nurses and clinical psychologists employed by MSF and by a large number of Burundians counsellors recruited from within the camp. Their qualifications for the work and the standards of care they provide are not high. Every six months MSF sends an expatriate psychiatrist for a month to see how the service is going and offer training and support and that was my job. I was given a lot of written information in advance and I also prepared some training that I would do based on this information. There is an external Tanzanian psychiatrist as well, Dr. Chantal Mukunyonga, who also runs a clinic for MSF at the Induta Camp Hospital for two days once a month, arranged by the IRC. She sees patients referred to her by the MSF teams as well as giving the team some advice and support. She's mainly employed elsewhere at Kasaka Mental Health Centre, a 100 kilometres away, established by the Christian Brothers of Charity. As regards the MSF full-time employees, there's both a psychosocial support service and a psychiatric service in a camp. The two work closely together. The psychosocial support service consists of a team of three Tanzanian clinical psychologists and 26 unqualified Burundian counsellors, all overseen by one of the clinical psychologists. The psychiatric service, on the other hand, is provided by a medically and psychiatrically trained officer clinical officer called Eric, assisted by an experienced psychiatric nurse, Grace, and by other clinical officers and MDs in the emergency room and on the wards. Burundian counsellors have a large caseload, doing one-to-one counselling and running groups. Most work in the hospital, in the inpatient and outpatient departments, eight work at four of the health posts elsewhere in the camp, and others in a mobile clinic all sometimes refer patients to the hospital for medication-based psychiatric care or for general medical care. Most of the psychiatric patients on medical medication also continue to have a psychosocial support counsellor as well. In view of the short time I was on the project, I concentrated my efforts on providing a formal basic psychiatric training to the members of the psychiatric service, to English-speaking members of the psychosocial support service, which was about half of them, and also to interested other clinical staff at the hospital, including some MDs, clinical officers, nurses and midwives with whom the service liaises. In all, 25 people received the full training. A number of others came to some sessions, but not all three. I based the training I provided on my own training and experience and my own views as to what would be helpful, combined with my knowledge of the camp and the project and of the mental health psychosuppos social and psychiatric services that were being provided, as well as what guidelines and documents staff currently use and what other training they'd had. I organised to train everyone in the same way, with the same formal training sessions, so that they all know what has been taught. So when I left the place after a month there, which was all too brief, I made a number of recommendations, one of which was, of course, that the protocols I'd proposed were used and also that the notes that I'd be given that I'd given to all the trainees be regularly reviewed. I also recommended a backup psychiatric clinical officer for Eric be trained. The next psych- psychiatrist to go there should have some knowledge of the assessment of children, if possible. Finally, the, I made a recommendation regarding the gender balance. The psych- psychosocial support team saw mainly women. There'd been six suicides in the camp since the beginning of the year and they were all men unknown to our service of the patients admitted the psychiatric patients admitted the majority were men so in some way we were missing a large number of people I think we were giving psychosocial support to large numbers of the women who no doubt needed it but obviously there were not a lot of men who probably also needed help who weren't receiving it and ended up as suicides or as acute admissions these men probably suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder. And as you probably know, that's associated with violence and with marital disharmony. So many of the women attending were probably attending because their husband had post-traumatic stress. So one of my recommendations was that some efforts be made by the whole project to locate these disturbed men and offer them some treatment.
1: And that was Dr. Peter Whig, who's a, a Melbourne psychiatrist he's also a member of the medical association for the prevention of war and um, he does regular or irregular trips overseas working for medicine sans frontier he's been to the middle east he's been to sri lanka and i know there are a couple of other places but i'm not quite sure about that but It does a great job helping people in many countries around the world and that's the job that Medicine Sans Frontières does. Now we need our help next week. I'm sure you know by now that it's Radiothon time next week. We go all this week with the programmers at night. The non-English speaking programmers have their Radiothon programs the first week and then for the second week which begins next Monday. All daytime programs as well as the nighttime programs have their radiothon program. Did
6: you know volunteering contributes to a happier life? Want to know what you can do to make a difference in your local community of Whittlesey? Whittlesey Community
3: Connections hold a volunteer information session every month. It is a friendly session where you get to
6: meet others and be linked to not-for-profit organisations. Contact Michelle from Whittlesea Community Connections on 94016630 or visit our website www.whittleseacc.org.au to find out more. A 3CR supporter. And
1: that's what you get for pushing the wrong button. As I was saying, that second week, which is next week, we all have our chance to raise funds to keep this wonderful radio station on air for yet another year. And the target this year is a huge $250,000. But when you consider how many programs there are through the week, night and day, 24 hours a day for at least the last week and many hours the first week, it's not such an insurmountable target to reach. So we really hope that our regular listeners, and maybe our not-so-regular listeners, will tune in over the weekend and you don't need to pay right on the spot. You can if you like, but you can pay in the coming weeks or maybe a little bit longer than that just to make sure that we do get the money in to start paying the bills that keep this radio station on air. So I do ask regular listeners to this program to ring in this time next week and pledge their support for Tuesday home time.
7: Hmm. I think we should get this invention which sucks up all of the rubbish in the world
1: and puts it in an intergalactic dimension.
3: 2040 is the latest film by award-winning director Damon Camo and shows us a possible future we could have if we take on board all the best practice options available now to change our planet. Join the Out of the Blue team for a special fundraising screening of 2040 on Thursday 20 June at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. To book tickets, Google 2040 Out of the Blue Radiothon Movie Fundraiser or find the event on our Facebook page on facebook.com slash out of the blue. Come along to Cinema Nova with the Out of the Blue team for a drink, a fantastic documentary and help raise funds for Radiothon 2019, Thursday, 20 June, 8 p.m. at the Nova Cinema in Carlton. Please note, saving the world is not guaranteed, but having a
6: great night is. Everywhere you look, you will see incredible reasons for hope.
1: Next, it's time for our monthly discussion with Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Important court cases in the US regarding Monsanto, now Bayer, and it's sort of coming to a, a, of a crescendo, isn't it, with the, the financial situation for Bayer.
0: We've now had three cases over the toxicity and carcinogenicity of Roundup, the herbicide in California, and the first two awards to the plaintiffs were about $80 million each. But the third one is over $2 billion. It's just incredibly unbelievable. And of course, she's in her 50s, is also stricken with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Although Roundup is responsible for a wide range of different ailments and illnesses, many of them fatal, it seems that the evidence around non-Hodgkin's lymphoma is the strongest. And for the moment, at least, that's where um, the awards are being made. Charlene sprayed Roundup for 15 years without any protection because, uh, of course, Monsanto's labels on the product uh, didn't say anything about protecting yourself from a chemical that was claimed to be so safe you could drink it. And as a result, she's now got terminal non-Hodgkin's lymphoma and will be in court in August.
1: What's the connection between glyphosate and liver disease?
0: That's part of the new evidence that's coming to light that again exposure to the active ingredient in Roundup which is glyphosate appears to be associated with residues of um, Roundup in foods and other stuff. The most recent research is around non-alcoholic fatty liver disease which is very common throughout industrial countries and Its multiple causes have been unclear, but uh, now this study of people with this disease have been found in the case of the exposed group to excrete higher levels of glyphosate residues than the disease-free control group. It's not conclusive yet, but the evidence is building that um, this other fatty liver disease may also be associated with Roundup residues. That should be a cause for concern. We've seen where um, whole communities have been oversprayed with the stuff in um, Argentina and Brazil, for instance, other childhood and adult diseases, skin diseases, developmental diseases, and even in some cases, and even in some cases, birth defects apparently caused by um, the exposure of fetuses to roundup residues as well. These findings are coming home to roost as well in fact there was a case some years ago there is an aboriginal community in western new south wales that complained of having been oversprayed with roundup a number of years ago which was never really properly followed up in which they claimed to have suffered ill health effects as well that was uh, from cotton industry out there there's evidence of harm everywhere and it's just got to be explored a bit further and As Roundup is also a hormone disruptor, it seems that a whole raft of other diseases which have so far been unaccounted for might be associated with exposure to Roundup and its residues as well.
1: Bob, what about the exposure through the food chain?
0: Well, that's where the uh, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease shows up. Okay. Where the residues which presumably have got into the subjects of that uh, study, came in through the food supply because, of course, even in Australia, many crops are now oversprayed with Roundup just prior to harvest to um, get uniform ripening of the grain, whether it's uh, wheat, barley and oats, to take away the green vegetation which tends to gum up harvesting machines, etc., And as a result, you do get levels of um, glyphosate residues in those um, grain commodities as well, and they are coming into the food supply.
1: So what we're seeing at the moment could only be the tip of the iceberg.
0: Well, yes, I think so. Um, There is a lot of independent research out there. I think that with the judgments that are being brought down in the various courts in America at the moment, but presumably, there'll be court cases in other countries as well. I think it's exercising the attention of a whole raft of different users, such as local councils, golf courses, land managers generally, who are using Roundup and are starting to have difficulty getting things like insurance against any harm that might be claimed from people who are either using the product or who are exposed as standby, as people who are standing by. For instance, councils are now very concerned about the fact that they've been spraying around schools, in parks and on, on footpaths where um, particularly vulnerable children and pets can be exposed. I think that we could see some cases being brought forward here in Australia as well where people have either been using this stuff commercially, which is um, without proper protection, where the, the bystanders the public at large or their kids and companion animals are being incidentally exposed just in the suburbs where we live.
1: But surely councils should be concentrating and concerned more than just insurance claims that people are being poisoned.
0: Well, I think that's a signal to them that they need to do something. The fact that there have been these huge cases in the USA has now got over 40 councils around Australia are either trialling or actually contracted to use weed steamers which are um, high temperature steam that's applied to weeds and is a pretty efficient method of managing them. For instance the city of Yarra now has a contract to use weed steamers in sensitive areas around the city. They say that uh, the actual cost is pretty low, about a dollar per resident per year. If you're exposed to being sued overexposure to a chemical herbicide like Roundup, the most used chemical in the world. And incidentally, Australians spent $1.7 billion last year on buying these chemicals. So it's not small business. You can see why the companies are scrambling to protect their interests as well. But we've got a number of councils at the moment that we're um, encouraging to review their situation. For instance, Sutherland Shire Council in uh, scomo's electorate south of sydney is currently considering this position mount alexander out near um, Castlemaine, uh, is looking at what it should do and also kentish council in northern tasmania these are councils where active citizens are using our petition forms which are available on the gene ethics website to go to their councils with signatures And say we want something done about this we don't want to be any longer exposed to Roundup or its residues in our areas.
1: Another issue Bob of course is 25 years since the first GM food what was it?
0: That was the flavor saver tomato it was a pretty interesting tomato in that it was industrial grade it was going to be sold for double the price it was going to taste better etc etc which it never did and we've got one of the scientists who worked on it, Belinda Martineau, who's now recalling the excitement in Calgene when they began marketing the first GM food 25 years ago uh, this month. Now, of course, she's feeling pretty profound disappointment that the whole thing of genetically manipulated crops and foods that were supposed to feed the world, be as safe as houses, etc., etc. Her main feeling about the whole thing was profound disappointment. Uh, Calgene failed and the company was then of course bought out by Monsanto and the tomato was never heard of again except in the mythology of the GM industry. So all of the many promises, the nitrogen fixation in grains, more nutritious food, longer shelf life food etc etc that The people at Calgene were talking about and imagining at that time, most of those things have not come true. Monsanto bought Calgene, dismantled its great dreams of the future for food, and instead went ahead with its work on Roundup-tolerant crops, which meant you could spray more often at higher doses, with Roundup, which we now know is carcinogenic, and otherwise putting in the BT insecticides, which seem to work for a while and reduce the amount of insecticides being sprayed, particularly on cotton. But uh, very soon, of course, the insects bounce back. They become very resistant to the Bt insect toxins. In cotton, for instance, in Australia, we're now in the fifth generation of the Bt insecticides in the cotton crop to try to manage the insects because they always adapt very quickly to being exposed particularly by these insecticides which are actually produced in large doses in the crop throughout the growing season.
1: How easy or difficult is it for farmers to get rid of these industrial farming practices and go for organic?
0: Well, the organic industry, of course, is still small but very robust in Australia. It's the largest area of um, organic production worldwide because, of course, we have a lot of big ranches particularly in the middle of our continent that are certified organic and there are some very large ones in Tasmania as well that are running animals so they don't use uh, anything that would be counter to organic and they are certified and are doing great work but I think now with the degradation of the environment going on everywhere really the whole world in crisis we need to be talking about something beyond organic as well. So organic's been a success up to a point, but now a growing number of farmers are rejecting the industrial model, are starting to talk about regenerative agriculture that looks at soils, water, vegetation, and the crops and animals that they are using on those farms and trying to do everything in harmony with nature and with regard for the maintenance of biodiversity at every level, from the microorganisms in the soil to the biggest trees on the place that manage those soils and those productive assets better. So it's a slow process of looking at regenerative farming, but there are now some good examples out there for instance, on Landline on ABC TV over last weekend, there was a very interesting story about the bananas, which we've all seen in the shops with the red wax on the end, eco-organic bananas, and how they're using regenerative agriculture to run their systems. And from a single farm that the Shaka family started to transition to regeneration around a decade ago, we now see that they're also commissioning a number of other farms to use their production method and to um, discover how they can all be regenerative, uh, much less industrial and more in keeping with with nature in their production systems. There's a very impressive report. Other examples given were about people running animals in a much more regenerative way. There are some books out there now too, uh, The Call of the Reed Warbler, in particular was uh, published last year by Charles Massey, and uh, it talks about how he transitioned his farm to using regenerative processes as well. I think it's on a roll.
1: How long is that transition period?
0: I think it will certainly be years, if not decades. You know, getting off the industrial treadmill and restoring your farm environments to harmonious interactions is going to be a long process. And the other thing that's significant and, and disappointing really is that we still have people like the Grains Research and Development Corporation with a budget in excess of $100 million a year for research and development in agriculture that spends virtually nothing on regeneration, on organics and other aspects of uh, transitioning to more sustainable regenerative farming systems. It's time a lot of those resources, and many of them are collected by way of levies from organic and regenerative producers anyway, that those monies were put into making those systems smarter, getting off the, out of the old industrial model that's chemical and petrochemical dependent, because of course petrochemicals are running out as well, phosphates are depleting. So the inputs that go into industrial agriculture are disappearing, becoming more expensive. And as a result, we have to make this transition anyway. So let's get on with it. Let's put some real resources behind the research and development and encourage and support farmers to go regenerative. It will do the world of good for our environment. It will improve public health. It will improve the safety of workers all around. It's beneficial, as Vandana Shiva was reported recently, as saying... I'm quoting, a regenerative agriculture provides answers to the soil crisis, the food crisis, the climate crisis and the crisis of democracy, end of quote. You know, that, what's good for India I think may be good for the world because um, you've got there hundreds of millions of farmers in small-scale farming now feeding India effectively and I think we have a lot to learn from Vandana and those practical farmers there as well.
1: Well, what good is DNA screening for disease going to do for us?
0: Well, this is something that's coming down the, uh, the track, of course. There's been constant talk of personalised medicine where um, we're going to have our DNA screened. But, of course, this is raising many, many ethical questions. Privacy, insurance, various kinds of discriminations, and our right to know about what the messages in our DNA are particularly where diseases that we might be identified as being prone to, have no treatments. We already take DNA samples as a Guthrie test, the the heel prick test when kids are born. Most of those test samples are now kept on file. The gathering of DNA information about people through the Guthrie test, pathology tests, these ancestry DNA tests that people are buying that are marketed over the TV and online. These are all problematic because that information, and it is information in the the four base codes of the DNA and our genome, being put on file in forensic labs as well, of course, where people are found to have committed crimes. A lot of that is going on. But what are the implications of this? Uh, Of course, our DNA is not that personal to us. Our DNA can identify... Our relatives, for instance, our DNA can suggest what kinds of diseases our relatives also might suffer from. So it's a very complex question for healthcare services, for insurance, and for a whole raft of other things that we have taken for granted. That now DNA banking has become this legal and potentially lethal minefield as far as our freedoms and liberties are concerned because we're just spreading our DNA everywhere, having it banked, It has implications for the way we live our lives and in the end for who we are really that we can be so easily identified. You know, it's like CCTV on steroids and we need to think carefully about just what we're contributing, how it will be stored and what protections for that information will be provided because it contributes to um, potential surveillance and problems about insurance about our health and safety
1: and DNA is not hundred percent is it safe
0: well of course DNA is only part of a very much more complex picture it's um, the code that codes for the production of proteins that run our run our biology of course there are environmental impacts and influences that we now are known to affect ourselves and can be also through epigenetics can be conveyed to future generations. So it's a very complex mix of DNA along with a whole raft of other things, lifestyle things, environment. The way we live live our lives, we need to think about it from an ethical and values point of view and just start as a community deciding what we want to do about all of this information being stored by people that we may not necessarily trust to do the right thing with it.
1: And where does IVF fit in with all of this?
0: It does fit in in a way in that, of course, now we've got sperm and eggs being saved, being transferred in the case of surrogacy, being donated where we've got sperm donors. DNA is going every which way as well and being delivered to who knows who. Our biological and our social parents now come into question. Everybody appears to have a very strong urge to want to know who their biological parents are, but with the reproductive technologies like IVF now used to produce something like 4% of all children, we're starting to go into another minefield. So we're enabling people who have questionable fertility, for instance, to reproduce themselves. Some people may be sub-fertile because they have certain kinds of diseases that they're prone to. And as a result, we're making the whole human community more and more dependent on the intervention of these industrial processes. That should be a concern to us as well, because... Sometime soon, in future generations, we're going to see that uh, the reproduction industry may become dominant and maybe everybody will be dependent on having IVF or some other technological intervention in order to reproduce themselves. This is not fanciful. There are even some people in the transhumanist movement who would welcome such interventions as routine. But I think it's something that those of us in the general run of society, should be seriously thinking about just what it is that we want to um, bequeath to future generations, because making them dependent on technological interventions, I think, is something we, we need to consider. It's It's not something that we should just simply allow to happen. There are downsides that need to be thought about, and they need to be thought about carefully in terms of the ethics and values that we bring to this discussion, not just accept that an industry, the reproduction industry, the IVF industry, and it is an industry that's in it for the profit, can simply take charge of human reproduction and that we should assume that uh, sometime soon they will dominate the landscape of humans reproducing themselves.
1: Thanks, as always, Bob.
0: Pleasure to talk to you. Thanks very much, Jan.
1: And that, of course, is Bob Phelps from the Gene Ethics Network. Do have a look on their webpage which is Gene Ethics Network, or Facebook. I oh, assume it's still the same, Gene Ethics Network. Time is 14 minutes past 5 o'clock.
0: Hello, I am Gabrielle Gatte. 3CR is like a souffle a challenge to make but it can just go higher and higher and higher support 3cr
6: The New International
1: Bookshop is hosting our annual Big Red Book Fair. Come down to the Trades Hall in Carlton on Saturday the 29th of June from 10am to 5pm. As always, the book fair features thousands of books across all genres, all radically priced. There's also a barbecue and a showcase of radical posters. In order to make this fundraiser a success, we are calling for book donations now. So if you have books that need a new home, please get in contact via the website at nibs.org.au or on 9662 3744. That's 9662 3744. The New International Bookshop, a 3CR supporter.
0: My name is Ian Ham and I'm the chair of the Healing Foundation's Stolen Generations Reference Group. At three weeks of age, I was separated from my birth family, and even though they lived just 50 kilometres away, I never knew they existed. I never met my mum, and it pains me to this day. There are thousands of Aboriginal people just like me, and our stories have never been heard. These stories form the basis of Australia's first Stolen Generations resource kit for schools. To download the kit, go to healingfoundation.org.au.
1: A 3CR supporter. Could there be a connection between the Black Death, also known as the Great Plague or the Black Plague, one of the most devastating pandemics in human history, and influenza, described as a common, highly contagious virus that affects the respiratory system? Writer and activist Joan Coxage has been researching the Great Plague and believes there could be
6: a connection. This afternoon I'm talking about the plague, an unusual topic for me because I'm not a doctor or a scientist but a writer and political activist. But I was asked to do some research for the book Year of Wonders by Geraldine Brooks which referred to 1665 and a small town in Derbyshire called Eam inhabited by lead miners and hill farmers that was based on historical fact. The townsfolk took the heroic decision to quarantine their plague-ravaged village to prevent the contagion from spreading further, an extraordinary sacrifice when most people in other places skipped town at the first sign of the disease. That part of England remained untouched until a bolt of cloth was brought by a traveller from London that was infested with fleas. The tailor who cut the cloth had no way of knowing that the damp fabric carried the bubonic infection. And so began that terrible year for 350 souls in a Pennine village, confronting a scourge beyond remedy or understanding. The Black Death that became known as the Bubonic Plague centuries later struck Europe and Asia in the mid-1300s. The disease was spread by wild rodents, especially black rats, also called the house rat, because it liked to live close to humans. It was passed between them by bites from their fleas whereas the brown or grey rat preferred to keep its distance in sewers and cellars. When a rat dies from the plague, the fleas have to find a new host to live on, which inevitably means they turn to humans. The disease spreads rapidly to other rat colonies and becomes an epidemic. Unlike human fleas, rat fleas are adapted to riding with their hosts and readily infest the clothing of people entering affected houses and travel with them to other houses or localities. The plague arrived in Europe in October 1347 when 12 ships from the Black Sea docked at the Sicilian port of Messina. Most sailors aboard the ships were dead and those still alive were gravely ill and covered in black boils that oozed blood and pus. Sicilian authorities hastily ordered the death ships out of the harbour but it was too late. Over the next five years, it is estimated the Black Death killed between 30 to 50% of the population, more than 20 million people. Even before the death ships pulled into Messina's port, many Europeans had heard rumours about a great pestilence that was carving a deadly path across the trade routes around the Near and Far East. In the early 1340s, the disease had struck China, India, Persia, Syria and Egypt, But Europeans were ill-equipped for the horrible reality. Not long after it struck Messina, the Black Death spread to the port of Marseille in France and the port of Tunis in North Africa. Then it reached Rome and Florence, two cities at the centre of an elaborate web of trading. By the middle of 1348, the Black Death had infected Paris, Lyon and London. It was a ghastly disease, terrifyingly indiscriminately contagious. The mere touching of the clothes, wrote Italian poet Giovanni Boccaccio, appeared to communicate the melody to the toucher. At the beginning of the melody, certain swellings, either in the groin or under the armpits, waxed to the bigness of a common apple, others to the size of an egg, some more and some less, and these were vulgarly named plague boils. The victim's skin turned black in patches and inflamed glands or buboes in the groin, hence the name bubonic, combined with compulsive vomiting and diarrhoea, fever, swollen tongue and splitting headaches made it a horrible, agonising killer. The disease was also hideously efficient. People who were perfectly healthy when they went to bed at night could be dead by morning. No one knew how to treat or prevent it. Physicians relied on bloodletting and boil lancing that were dangerous as well as unsanitary. Meanwhile, in a panic, healthy people did all they could to avoid the sick. Doctors refused to see patients. Priests refused to administer the last rites. And shopkeepers closed their store. Many fled to the countryside, but even they could not escape the disease because it affected cows, sheep, goats, pigs and chickens as well as people. There was a European wool shortage due to the loss of sheep. People didn't understand the biology of the disease, which fed into the view that the Black Death was a kind of divine punishment, retribution for sins against God, such as blasphemy, heresy, fornication and worldliness, whatever that means. By this logic, the only way to overcome it was to win God's forgiveness, with some believing they had to purge their communities of heretics and troublemakers. Even upper-class men joined processions of flagellants that travelled from town to town and engaged in public displays of penance and punishment. While others blamed traditional enemies, feeding age-old prejudices led to attacks on and even massacres of specific groups, most notably the Jews, thousands of whom fled to Poland. Even when the crisis passed there were significant consequences for European medieval society. With a shortage of workers and farmers, salaries and prices soared, food was scarce and there were few manufactured goods. The institution of serfdom was doomed, resulting in a general questioning of society with the birth of a more flexible and more independent workforce. Social unrest followed and often outright rebellions broke out when the aristocracy tried to fight back against these new demands. The peasants didn't get all they wanted, but the old system of feudalism was gone. It took 200 years for the population of Europe to recover to the level seen prior to the outbreak. And the Black Death struck London in the autumn of 1348 and during the next 18 months it killed half of all Londoners, perhaps 40,000 people. There were so many dead that bodies were disposed of in mass graves piled on top of each other. One was excavated by archaeologists at the site of the Royal Mint near the Tower of London. The plague returned to London roughly every 20 to 30 years, killing around 20% of London's population each time, until its last major outbreak in 1665, which started in the poor, overcrowded parish of saint Giles in Charles-in-the-Field, and started slowly, but within seven months, 100,000 Londoners were dead, one-fifth of the population. When plague appeared in a household, the house was sealed, thus condemning the entire family to death. Plague houses had a red cross painted on the door, and the words, Lord, have mercy on us. At night, the corpses were brought out in answer to the cry, Bring out your dead, put in a cart, and taken away to the plague pits. A bell was rung for 45 minutes for each burial, a reminder to follow the plague prevention rules. Theatres and other places of entertainment were shut and football was banned in order to contain the disease. Every week, each London parish recorded the number of people who had died. These added up and printed on lists that were called mortality bills. People were so terrified, some threw afflicted servants into the streets while others refused to help sick friends and family members. In his diary, Samuel Pepys, a clerk of the Privy Seal, gave a vivid account of the empty streets of London, writing, The plague is making us cruel as dogs to one another. It was believed that holding a posy of flowers to the nose kept the plague away, and to this day judges are given a nosegay to carry on ceremonial occasions for protection. A song about the plague is still sung by children, Ring a Ring of Roses describes in detail the symptoms of the plague, especially the ending, We All Fall Down. In many towns and villages across England, there are still old market crosses which have a depression at the foot of the stone cross that was filled with vinegar during times of plague, as it was con- assumed that vinegar would kill any germs on the coins and so contain the disease. Many also believe the plague spread through bad air, so people smoked tobacco to stop the bad air from entering their lungs, and thought animals might spread the disease, so strays were killed by special dog killers. Around 40,000 dogs and 200,000 cats were slaughtered. Once the plague was over, London's population recovered surprisingly quickly. New people replaced those who had died, and there was a sudden rise in marriages and births, and life slowly returned to normal. The plague lingered on until the last reported case in 1679, Although over the centuries it continued to break out in Europe and the Far East, in 1900 there were outbreaks in places as far apart as Portugal and Australia. Influenza seems to be the modern version. At the end of World War I an influenza outbreak encircled the world during 1918 to 1919 and within a year 20 million people had died. The people of London who survived the 1665 plague might have thought the year 1666 could only get better. They were wrong. One of the world's best known disasters, the Great Fire of London, started on the 2nd of September 1666 in a bakery on Pudding Lane caused by a spark from the oven falling onto a pile of fuel. After a very long, dry, hot summer and fanned by a strong easterly wind, the fire spread rapidly to the surrounding area of warehouses containing highly flammable goods and tinder-dry wooden houses and buildings. At its peak, the temperature climbed to 1,700 degrees Celsius. There was no fire brigade in London back then, so the Londoners who stayed put had to put the fire out themselves with buckets of water helped by local soldiers. Others headed for the Thames to escape by boat and thousands of sightseers from the villages poured in to view the disaster. You can imagine the chaos and panic. By the 4th of September half of London was in flames. The king ordered that all houses in the path of the fire should be pulled down to create a firebreak to no avail as the fire outstripped them. The king himself joined the firefighters. And as a last resort, gunpowder was used to blow up houses to cause a bigger fire break. But rumours spread that a French invasion was taking place, causing even more panic. And as Londoners poured out of their city, St Paul's became engulfed in flames and the Great Cathedral collapsed. Luckily, the Tower of London escaped the inferno. The wind dropped and the firefighters eventually regained control. By the 6th of September, the fire was out. Only one-fifth of the city was left standing. Virtually all the civic buildings had been destroyed, along with 13,000 private dwellings, 89 parish churches, markets and the famous Guildhall. And although the Great Fire was a catastrophe, it cleansed the city by destroying the overcrowded and disease-ridden streets along with most of the rats and fleas that carried the plague. Sir Christopher Wren was given the task of rebuilding London, the one we recognise today. He rebuilt 52 of the city's churches, including his masterpiece, St Paul's Cathedral, which was started in 1675 and completed in 1711. An inscription in the cathedral reads, If you seek his monument, look around. The term Black Death was first used in the 1800s. Medieval people called the disease the Great Pestilence, in 1894, French doctor Alexandre Yersin discovered the bacterium that caused the bubonic plague, and in 1908, experts realized that rat fleas were the cause. While the plague is extremely rare today, many express shock that its cases still pop up. That's because people associated with the terrible epidemic that wiped out nearly half of Europe in the Middle Ages which was caused by the same bacterium, Yersinia pestis. But new research helps us better understand the pandemic and how to keep it in check. For the first time, scientists have used DNA extracted from victims buried in London to sequence their virulent genome, which suggests that all modern strains of the microbe evolved from that medieval bug. Even in areas of the world that still experience outbreaks, mortality rates are estimated to be 8 to 10%. While it is obviously a very serious illness, it can be treated if the symptoms are recognised early with common antibiotics. And with better hygiene, it doesn't spread in the same way. Australian colonial authorities were acutely aware that it was only a matter of time before the disease reached our continent. The first case of bubonic plague in Australia was reported in January 1900 affecting a delivery man who worked at Sydney's Central Wharf and by the end of February, 30 cases had been reported. But there were relatively few deaths due to a coordinated response from government authorities. The plague continued to reappear annually in Sydney until 1910, with smaller numbers also reported in Queensland, Adelaide, Melbourne and Fremantle. In total, 1,371 cases were reported, with 535 deaths across Australia. So there you are. That's a bit of a, a rundown of the plague, and we can hope that we don't see it reappear as it did in the old days. So good afternoon and good luck. Good afternoon
1: to writer and political activist Joan Coxage and a bit of a first for Tuesday home time, but there you go. Just a little bit of history never goes astray. 3CR has a new program, Think Again, with Jennifer
4: and Jack from Borderlands Cooperative. Join us for another take on things that matter.
3: Starting 10am Friday
1: 7 June.
4: See you you then. then.
3: 3CR Radiothon is here.
0: And this year, we're asking you to power Radical Radio.
3: That's right. It's with your support that we're able to be independent, community-controlled and focused on people rather than profits.
4: Your support, during Radiothon, powers the station to give voice to hundreds of people in issues for another year.
3: And remember, any amount you can afford makes a big difference and all donations over $2 are tax deductible. 3CR Radiothon 2019,
7: June the 3rd to the
3: 16th, Power Radical Radio.
1: It's difficult to read an article in the mainstream media or listen to a broadcast which doesn't feature governments attempting to stifle China's economic power worldwide. Today, Nick McClellan, journalist and researcher, tackles the issue of China and its place in the world.
4: Well, China's become the new boogeyman in the Pacific. You know, we had last year a series of articles in the Age and Sydney Morning Herald saying that government officials in Vanuatu were plotting with the Chinese to establish a a military base in Vanuatu. Now, that was denied by the Prime Minister and Foreign Minister at the time, Saying that, um, you know, Vanuatu was a proudly non-aligned country, that Vanuatu was a nuclear-free country, going back to the 1980s. And while they certainly had diplomatic and trade ties with China, they were, were not gonna have a foreign military base in their country, full stop. You know, there's a lot of talk about China's rising influence through its aid programs, loans and grants to Pacific Island countries. And that's certainly shifted in the last 10 or 20 years. China is now the largest financier, for example, for Fiji. It has significant interests in Papua New Guinea through the so-called Belt and Road program that China's been promoting. President Xi Jinping of China visited Papua New Guinea last November at the time of the APEC meeting and held a summit with uh, the Pacific. China is certainly uh, a growing force in the Pacific, but it's really important to keep it in perspective Um, Looking at aid flows, overseas aid flows to the Pacific, China's still a relatively small player, apart from a couple of countries. It's only 8% of all foreign aid. So Australia, New Zealand, Japan, the United States and France, still far and away are the major aid and uh, military powers in the region. China's increasing its aid, uh, sorry, its trade, I should say, uh, with Pacific countries. In fact, Australia is a very poor trading partner with our island neighbours. Australia's trade is very much focused on Asia, East Asia, you know, selling iron ore and energy and so on to India, to China, to other countries. So our trading relations with Pacific neighbours are pretty poor and China's picking up some of that slack. So China's a growing force, but it's not the dominant force and nowhere near that in the Pacific Islands.
1: Looking at China worldwide, it's the boogeyman, isn't it?
4: Well, it's a rising economic power, and we've seen a massive shift in China's economy over the last few decades. You know, going back to the 1970s, at the time of the death of uh, Mao Zedong, the, the fall of um, uh, the so-called Gang of Four, the capitalist roaders took the capitalist road. Deng Xiaoping, a key leader at the time, was crucial in saying... It doesn't matter whether the cat is black or white as long as it catches the mouse. At that time, you saw the development of free trade zones, uh, free trade areas, uh, particularly at Shenzhen, near the, uh, the border with um, Hong Kong, in Guangdong province. Real integration of China into global structures of accumulation of production. And so a lot of Western corporations rushed in to use cheap Chinese labor. You know, the manufacture of a whole range of products. In China was a real economic strategy in the latter part of the 20th century the problem was that labor ended up being not so cheap in China because as tens of thousands hundreds of thousands of workers came from rural areas to the cities into factories they started to organize through both official and unofficial trade unions and it's the historic experience that we've seen elsewhere in the world you know in in America A flood of people from Europe in the latter part of the 19th century, from Ireland, from uh, central areas of Europe, from the Balkans and so on, saw a massive growth of organising and everything from the Lowell factory girls to to others, saw people going into factories with terrible working conditions, terrible health and safety problems, enormous speed up and automation, uh, driving, that sort of work, and people got organised. And we've seen the same phenomenon in China Whereas rural workers coming to the cities have come together as factory workers and in other workplaces and have started to organise. And so in recent decades, we've seen the growth of unofficial labour organising and some major strikes, you know, thousands of people coming out on strike at the same time. Not well publicised because uh, the business press in Australia has more seen China as a market than as a a site of production and reproduction.
1: Human rights? Human rights?
4: Well, human rights in China is pretty atrocious. You know, the ruling regime in China has uh, significant human rights violations. There's been crackdowns both on uh, workers and intellectuals. There's been a lot of repression of uh, the uh, growing workers' movement in China. And there's a level of surveillance culture, which is pretty stunning, using new technologies, in terms of uh, new social monitoring with everything from CCTV to uh, uh, phone monitoring to uh, local uh, police monitoring and so on, and uh, a carrot and stick thing where you can get benefits by being a good citizen and you can literally have points taken away in some villages for dropping rubbish or for not being a good neighbour and so on. So there's a level of social control in China that's quite significant and uh, is, is causing real debate amongst uh, working people.
1: Also, a lot of debate by the US about the role of China.
4: Well, once again, uh, uh, you know, as as in the the debate about China in the Pacific, there's a level of hype about this that needs to be kept in perspective. You know, the United States is still the major military power in the world. The US defence budget dwarfs that of China and indeed of next dozen countries combined. The United States has been a major force. But what we're seeing with the Trump administration is a backlash against China's rise as a major economic power, China's growing investment and trade patterns through the Belt and Road Initiative, through investment in purchase of businesses, of land, in not only Australia but in Europe and other parts of the world. And that strategic threat, medium to long term, is something that's really worried the American government, the American ruling class. There's a lot of talk about China upsetting the rules-based order And the real question is, whose rules? Australian foreign policy statements, the defence white paper, the foreign policy white paper, talk a lot about the rules-based order and see China and indeed other forces as a threat to that rules-based order. And that's a a real issue. And the first question, obviously, is who made the rules? There are some rules that uh, uh, I think are really helpful and positive. I think of the law of the sea, for example. Which, when we look back at the history of the 20th century, was one of the great achievements of the international community, so-called, of the United Nations, to create a mechanism to regulate and control the vast ocean resources that are central to human life on this planet, and to ensure that developing countries had, even the smallest, like Tuvalu and Kiribati and other microstates, had a share of the commonwealth of humanity which is the resources of the oceans. To that extent, uh, you know, there are some rules that actually benefit humanity. You know, attempts to regulate nuclear weapons or other weapons of mass destruction, I would argue, you know, are a valuable source of rules. But there are other rules that have clearly been rigged that uh, are rules that have been created, particularly since the Second World War, since the end of the Vietnam War with the, the Bretton Woods Agreements and so on, that have been designed to benefit particularly the United States and corporate interests. And so you have a situation, for example, where for a long time, the president of the World Bank had to be an American, where the head of the uh, IMF had to be a European, part of the rules, sometimes unspoken, sometimes codified. You know, the World Trade Organization created in the mid-1990s was very much a system of trade that has been driven by the interests of corporations, and particularly American corporations. So whole elements of the, the trading regime that's been created since the mid-1990s has been to the benefit of the corporate sector around intellectual property, around uh, uh, trade in services, as well as trade in goods. There's a whole global regime that's been created about the movement of capital, particularly, which has enormously benefited speculative finance and seen you know, massive runs on the banks in 1998 going back to the Asian economic crisis of 1998 that also happened in Russia in, in Argentina in 1998 and a decade later that infected the heart of Western capitalism with the housing and financial crisis in Europe and America. Since then, little has been done in the subsequent decade to sort out that. We've not seen a lot of bankers going to jail, despite the sort of scandals that we saw in the Australian Royal Commission into banking, let alone globally. It has been a few sacrificial lambs, but by and large, the banking industry, the finance sector has gone on their way. So China is certainly threatening some of these rules by its policies. You have China having attitudes to capital controls, not just China, but Korea and uh, Japan and other countries that are anathema to the American state and the American business interests. You've had China challenging American trade policy. And so these sort of questions are being played out um, with the current trade battles between the Trump administration and, uh, and the Chinese government. The problem is that the little guys get crushed in the rush.
1: Who's likely to win that one?
4: Well, I think the Americans face significant contradictions in this, but so do China. You know, this is a, a global capitalist system, and one of the things that we've seen since the end of the Cold War has been that the Americans are pushed into areas that were off limits during the period where the Soviet Union was the other major superpower. So we've seen, for example, NATO's expansion into Eastern Europe right up to the border of Russia through the Ukraine and so on. We've seen American interests in the stands, Kazakhstan, uh, uh, Uzbekistan and other places. You know, the Americans built military bases in Uzbekistan after the the collapse of the Soviet Union. Uh, We've seen, obviously, the changes in the Middle East, where with the first Gulf War, then the second Gulf War, the war and invasion in Iraq... Uh, the conflict in Syria, the influence that the United States tried under the Bush administration to invade Iraq and so on. So areas that during the Cold War were essentially off limits, East Europe, the stands, the Middle East, have now been thrown into turmoil. And that's being played out uh, still for the major powers like Russia and China. This has caused enormous strategic problems and they've responded by massive military build-up and particularly the development of more nuclear weapons. And so we're seeing a response from humanity against that, such as the new Treaty on the Prohibition of Nuclear Weapons, knowing that the existing rules either don't work, like the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty, or are in fact being rolled back. So we've seen under the Trump administration the Americans withdrawing from the START agreement, which limits strategic weapons between Russia and America. We've seen the Americans rip up the Iran nuclear deal, which was an attempt by The Western powers to contain and constrain Iran to the benefit of the Saudis and the uh, Israelis uh, in the Middle East. So we're now entering a much more fluid situation, and uh, the the attitude to China is a big part of that.
1: What about the increasing economic influence in countries like, or in areas of the world like Africa and Latin America?
4: We're seeing, you know, the growth of Chinese investment, Chinese trade. ...in areas that historically uh, they weren't there. Although, you know, China has been active in some parts of the world. They built railways in Tanzania going back in the 1970s. So China has always uh, seen itself as a South-South partner... ...different to the North-South aid and development that's come from the United States... ...from Europe, from Australia, New Zealand and other Western powers. Uh, China's always portrayed its international solidarity as a, a development partner... But today, China's got the resources to expand that. And the Belt and Road Initiative, um, this massive Chinese uh, infrastructure and political development program that's reaching across major parts of the developing world, is a sign of that. But uh, Chinese private and state-owned corporations operate pretty much in the model of Western corporations. They want to rip out resources. And there are a lot of social, particularly environmental and economic problems associated with that. You know, China's only just created an aid coordination agency. Um, There's now a new Chinese aid body. Previously, a lot of foreign aid was uh, managed through the Ministry of Commerce, and so the tension between development interests and trade interests was being played out in Chinese policy, just as we've seen the battle within Australia and and other developed countries. So China is struggling to manage the activities of Chinese corporations, which in many cases have been just as rapacious and just as ugly as those of uh, uh, Europe or, or America.
1: What about relations with countries like North Korea, Taiwan, Hong Kong and the, the Uyghur people in the West?
4: Yeah, China faces a lot of contradictions. And I think one of the problems, that, and you see the battle between the so-called globalists and the nationalists in Europe and in America, you know, how do you deal with the rise of China? And it's often not just China. It's, you know, about India as more than a billion people. It's about significant powers economically like Korea and Japan and so on. Where where do they fit into the picture? I think one of the problems is that the business community for a long time has uh, boosted China as, you know, this great market that's opening up without addressing the human rights violations involved in China's economic rise and without looking at the contradictions of Chinese power. China faces a number of contradictions. You know, Chairman Mao in 1937 wrote an essay on this called On Contradiction. It's worth going back and reading. You know, the rise of China's economy has also seen enormous proletarian discontent. You know, workers organising in factories uh, to protect their working conditions, their wages and uh, their living conditions and so on. China faces enormous problems about energy and environment. You know, to feed more than a billion people is an enormous challenge and to do it in an environmentally sustainable way is causing enormous problems and the rapid industrialisation of China has seen you know, coal-fired power which is causing significant pollution in urban centres. So, you, know, you only have to look at the pictures of people with face masks and kids not being allowed to go outside to play and things like that to realise the environmental challenges of this rapid economic growth is posing real challenges to the Chinese government and the Chinese people the national question as you describe is a significant issue what to do with Tibet with Taiwan, with Hong Kong with the Uyghur people and China as we all know runs a one China policy arguing that uh, Taiwan is an integral part of People's Republic of China and that battle is going to play out on the international stage and the Chinese have certainly been advancing their case, you know, 20 years ago about 30 countries had diplomatic relations with Taiwan. Now that's more than halved. I think there's about 17. I have to go and check my numbers. About 17 countries that recognised Taiwan. So nearly half of those that were there some time ago. And most of those are small island states in the Caribbean, the Pacific, the Vatican. Not a lot of economic powerhouses back Taiwan. And so China is using its diplomatic economic influence to try and... Uh, and, and pressure countries to uh, adopt a one-China policy.
1: Where to in the next decade or so?
4: Interesting times. One of the problems for China is that as it integrates into the global mechanisms of accumulation and production, reproduction, it faces all the challenges that capitalism brings with it, the challenge of boom and bust.
1: What about population?
4: Yeah, I think China's going through interesting times because of the one-child policy that China had, for a long time, um, it's created really interesting dynamics within families where um, a growing generation of people who are now getting older have no siblings to help them, care for ageing parents, particularly ageing grandparents uh, and so on. So there's a generation of single Chinese that's had impacts on marriage and so on within China as well in terms of the preference for boys over girls in many rural areas. Uh, So China sociologically is going through some real changes with an ageing population Not as bad as a country like Japan, which is desperate for young people, but certainly there is a changing demography. And so although the population's grown, China's now grappling with changing its one-child policy to allow people to have more children simply because there's a need for a younger cohort growing up to deal with that ageing population, and that's a challenge in many industrialising countries. But energy, environment, uh, you know, the growth model that capitalism promotes, you know, it's grow or die. And the problem is, as we know, that uh, with climate change, uh, with environmental sustainability, the growth model creates new contradictions. And I think China's grappling with that on a massive scale that smaller countries don't have to deal with. You know, how do you make the transition towards renewable energy? Chinese leadership has seen significant shifts in that, but with a billion people, it's not an easy transition to make, and that's going to be a, a real feature over the next decade about whether they can make that transition without too many challenges to the growth model that they've adopted.
1: Do you believe the Communist Party will ever give way to some form of democracy?
4: Well, let's define democracy, but yeah, I think I think it's inevitable that um, a state-centred uh, development model eventually will run into to limits. People want their freedom. People want the right to organise. People want free expression. Those are innate human rights, whether you're Chinese, American, Eskimo or otherwise. Um, these are universal human values and people will struggle for those human values. You know, we've seen massive political changes in China going back to 1911, 1949 and, and onwards. Uh, those changes will continue to challenge the Chinese regime.
1: And when you think in... The the period of China; these uh, these years are just a little blip, really.
4: I'm one of these old-fashioned people who think that you know the latest boogeyman is not the issue. Focusing on China too much misses the changes that are happening all around the world. The jargon is we live in a multipolar world. Um, those of us old enough to remember the days where there were two superpowers, the Soviet Union and the Americans, well, things change. Got a shelf of books about apartheid, and when I was getting involved in politics early on. Apartheid, you know, what's your line on South Africa, was a defining issue. Well, apartheid collapsed because the people of South Africa fought apartheid with solidarity and support from around the world. You know, what's your line on the Russians was a defining thing for anti-nuclear activists. They were always accused of being Russian stooges. Well, the Soviet Union collapsed with its own internal contradictions. Not always for the good, when you look at the way in which A new capitalist class in Russia, Uh, the rise of the oligarchs and their support with uh, former KGB people and so on, uh, has not meant a lot for human rights in Russia. But those things changed. The world changes. Um, Regimes have risen and fallen, and uh, that will continue to happen. And so I think China will go through changes, but this is happening all around the world. And I think this goes back to the point about China being the boggy man that's changing the rules, Well, lots of people are working to change the rules. The rules have created a climate emergency, a climate crisis that is seriously threatening human and multi-species extinction. You you only have to read the latest reports coming out about the enormous challenge that the capitalist growth model has created for humanity and for other species to realise that the rules have to change and they're going to have to change pretty rapidly. So the pattern... ...that the world has been built around, the institutions that the world has created from the United Nations to the WTO and so on, are going to go through significant change. You know, the UN Security Council still has five countries that have veto powers, and these were the countries that won the Second World War. Well, I'm sorry, times are changing, and we're going to see increasing threat from other powers to change... The P5, the permanent five members, and with their veto power. Now China happens to be one of those five, but big countries like India and so on are pushing for a change. Growing countries like Nigeria and Mexico and Brazil and the developing world are wanting to change the rules. So this is a battle, whether we leave it to elites, to corporations, to define the rules, or whether ordinary people have a say in that. And I think uh, we're going to see in China, just as much as we see elsewhere in the world, that it's not just up to governments, it's about... Uh, all of us having a say in what the new rules are.
1: And that's Nick McClellan, author, journalist, researcher, extraordinaire, Nick McClellan. That's all for me for today. I will be back next Tuesday at 4 o'clock. And as I've been telling you for the last few weeks, next week is Radio Son and I just hope that... I do trust, I don't hope, I'm sure that regular listeners will do the right thing by... 3CR and contribute whatever you can afford there's no upper limit no lower limit just whatever you feel comfortable with would be absolutely great to help keep this wonderful radio station on air for another year so I'll say goodbye now and done by law we'll be with you in a couple of minutes time bye for now